You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. I'm Steve Morrison, Senior Vice President at CSIS and Director of the Global Health Policy Center. In mid-February, I attended the Munich Security Conference, at which I organized a town hall focused on COVID-19. I was able to connect with some of the foremost leaders of global agencies, donor organizations, foundations, and others to discuss their organization's efforts on pandemic prevention and what needs to be done. In this episode, you will hear from Jeremy Farah, Director of the Wellcome Trust. Hello, this is Steve Morrison, Senior Vice President at CSIS, and I'm here in Germany at the Munich Security Conference on Friday, February 14th, and I'm joined by Jeremy Farah, Director of the Wellcome Trust, based in London. Welcome, Jeremy, and thanks so much for giving us some time. Thank you. Let's start by asking you a question around your past experience during the 2002-2003 SARS outbreak in Asia. You were living in Asia in that time. What, what was your experience? Tell us a little bit about what that, living through that was, and what sort of deep impressions that left with you as this new outbreak is unfolding. Yeah, 2002, 80 years ago now. It's like a lifetime ago, but, but it, it's still very, um, very close in my mind. A very good friend of mine, Carlo Urbani, was working for the WHO. He'd previously been at MSF. In fact, he collected the Nobel Prize when MSF was awarded the Nobel Prize when he was head of uh, MSF Italy. And he was working in Hanoi, in, in a hospital in Hanoi, and he noticed that there were a series of patients coming in with an unusual pneumonia. Yes. But he also noticed that it wasn't just the patients, actually some of the nurses and the doctors were getting sick as well. And uh, I remember, this was the beginning of 2003 now, I think, uh, he he phoned me up. Uh, he was a parasitologist and he wasn't actually very active, not doing so much clinical work at that time. And he phoned me up. I was living in Ho Chi Minh City and he was in Hanoi. And, and he said, this was happening and what should he do? So my first thought was, Carlo, look after yourself because, you know, these things, we've been waiting really. H5M1 had been in Hong Kong a few years earlier. Right. And of course, we all in infectious diseases worry about 1918. And so he promised he would. He had three young children and, and a wife in Hanoi, and uh, he promised he would. And out of that came his declaration, really, to the world that, that SARS existed. And he took the incredibly brave decision to persuade the Vietnamese authorities to effectively close the hospital and really not allow anybody in or out. And that essentially saved Vietnam because there weren't other cases in mm -hmm. Vietnam, whereas, mm -hmm. in fact, Vietnam would have been incredibly vulnerable to the spread of SARS, as was southern China. So effectively, he saved a country. And of course, tragically, he got infected and subsequently uh, died of SARS. And, and of course, although that was 18 years ago, he was, he was a close friend. And, and that has remained with me. And, you know, it brings you to the current day. And, you know, I think 13, 1400 uh, nurses and doctors in China have been infected. Correct. And, yeah, and just revealed. Week yeah. or two, there's been six deaths. Yes. Uh, and your heart goes out to the doctors and nurses in uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, who are there on the front line right. in China today, in Singapore, indeed, around the world. And, you know, healthcare workers are people that uh, absolutely put their lives on the line at times like this uh, to protect them, their families, their communities, and actually the rest of the world. And Do you think we should be surprised that the Chinese are experiencing this in terms of the lack of preparedness and ability to protect the 
equip and protect the health workers, that this is such a fast-moving yeah, outbreak? Yeah, I, I err on the side of, geez, this is just so unprecedented. Yes. Certainly in my life, but actually I believe going back decades, I don't believe the world has ever seen something like this. If, mm-hmm. You know, if I was talking to, to my brother or sister, not in medicine, and, I, and they said to me, what would worry you? You know, I would say an animal virus that comes across to humans that is easily transmissible from one person to another, that causes very mild disease all the way through to severe disease and death, and that you're infectious throughout that period. Correct. And we have no diagnostic, no drug, and no vaccine. And to me, that's what we're describing. And so SARS lasted from about November 2002 to July 2003, 8,000 people infected and about 800 deaths. Within a month, this has been into the tens of thousands of people. Correct. And already at week six or seven, we've had uh, almost twice as many deaths as have died of SARS right. in six weeks. Yes. So we're facing something which you can prepare for, you can certainly mitigate, but we should also acknowledge the power of emerging infections to disrupt systems. And you cannot, we're not omnipotent, you can't prepare for everything. You can try and mitigate and you can do your best, but you can't prevent, and we should be honest and transparent about that, I think, and complete. So given all of these unknowns and the, the urgency that we face here today, in your estimation, you know, what are the two or three top-line things that need to happen in this next phase? Well, I think what China's doing at the moment, again, is unprecedented. They're essentially closing down cities and societies, right. and I believe that that will has had an impact already to delay the spread mm-hmm. and probably mitigate the worst of the peak of the epidemic. Right. It's with, bought time for those outside of it's China, bought, too. And, and critically, it's bought time for those in other cities in China right. and outside. Yes. And I think the most important thing to do is that people around the world use that time sensibly. We don't need to panic. Mm -hmm. We need to be calm, rational, and use the best evidence we can and use science to guide us. But I think governments around the world, philanthropy like ourselves, people like yourselves, need to just be calmly pushing to make those preparations now. Because if this does come to Europe, North America, Sub-Saharan Africa, Venezuela, Australia, India, then all of these countries will be really challenged with what we're facing if they follow anything like what's happening in China. And we may have a window of opportunity, which may be a few days, it may be a few weeks, but we would be well advised to use that wisely. Do you think we need to be doing more at a high diplomatic level right now? There's been all of these gatherings, quite quite impressive of the scientists and public health experts. the gathering in Geneva this week was extraordinary. You were part of that. Maybe you could say a word about that. I'm, my question is, when you look at the, the possibility of a worsening internal outbreak within China itself, and some of the indications this week are very disturbing around mm-hmm. the speed of transmission and the degree to which certain areas are overwhelmed and, and the spread into other provinces. When you look at the possibility, as you say, of spread into places with very weak preparedness, Uh, that could have devastating consequences. When you look at the possibility that all of that could be unfolding in the midst of the global economy seizing up as a result, it's potentially multiple interlocking crises that are going to require a pretty high level effort at trying to unwind those and, as you say, stay calm and be rational and be strategic in how we do this. In 2002, 2003, China was, I think, about 3% of global GDP. 
Right. Today, it's close to 20%. Correct. It is, to a large extent, the supplier of all sorts of things that are critical to the world, whether it be drugs and vaccines mm. in the United States or Sub-Saharan mm. Africa, it'd be your iPhone or my computer or your car or my car. So China is completely different today to what it was in 2002, 2003, and the potential for economic and geopolitical disruption is very real. You're right, the scientific community came together this week in Geneva under the umbrella of WHO, and I was honored to uh, co-chair that meeting, and we brought four or 500 scientists together, all committed to working together in a, yes, there'll be competition, of course there will, that's a good thing, but there'll also be a harmonization and working together. But I think this is also an opportunity at a much different political level to say the world has looked at some political crises. And we all know over the last few years, there's been tensions between the United States and China, trade disputes and all sorts right. of things and complex relationships between America, Europe, China, India and the rest of the world. As an optimist, I would say, actually, at a time of crisis is sometimes a time when you put aside those differences mm -hmm. and you say, let's open up those channels of communication again, because we face a common threat. If New York, if London, if Geneva, if Paris went through something going on in Wuhan at the moment or anything like it, the disruption to societies there would be profound. And so as an optimist, I would say the health communities come together, the research communities come together, and we will do what we can, but it's going to require higher level political and diplomatic efforts to bring countries together to argue that these infectious diseases do not respect borders. What happened in China today will affect New York tomorrow. This is a time to actually put aside those trade disputes and other tensions and say we face a common threat. Let's do it together. Well, there certainly are plenty of tensions and plenty of things that could throw off balance the appeal to higher level leadership to take this most seriously and transcend those those divisions. Do you see any indications of initiatives coming at high levels to try and create that kind of strategic dialogue that's necessary as we look ahead? Yeah, I, I think there are small seeds of it. And right. I, th I, I think though any of us who have any influence on any of this need to encourage those. The fact that in China actually now, the president, President Xi, has personally taken charge of this yes. and, and says that that's the level of political support in China. It has been actually encouraging to see the United States president in his communications about this talking about some degree of solidarity with China on this. And common humanity. Yes. And common humanity. Yes. It could have happened differently. Yes. And we know that. So I regard that as a positive sign that actually people appreciate how important this is. Mm -hmm. And then finally, I'd say, yes, if this comes to Europe, North America and other countries, it will challenge the health and political systems of those countries as well. But the impact on the low and middle income countries, the resource limited settings, would be devastating. And certainly at the uh, science and researcher meetings in Geneva this week, and I believe in the po political discourse here in Germany and elsewhere, a real sense that we will not allow sub-Saharan Africa, less resource places to fall behind. And in fact, we will work with them to make sure they have the diagnostic capacity and that they have the knowledge in which to implement the control measures that are possible and that we won't leave low resource settings behind. And that's going to be an, an extraordinary scramble to accomplish that in this next phase as a priority. A huge scramble. And, you know, in the end, a national government's primary responsibility is to its citizens. We all yes. understand that. Yes. But I think in doing that, the rich world has got to just say that we've got to 
take a more equitable approach to this and ensure that we don't just protect our own citizens, but we also protect the West. There's enlightened self-interest in that as well, yeah. because we could protect Americans, we could protect Europeans and Chinese people, but if this were to become established in other jurisdictions, uh, it would come back in waves afterwards anyway. So it isn't just about equity and access and solidarity, it's also an enlightened self-interest. So say a bit about the role that Wellcome Trust plays. Where does Wellcome Trust fit in the ecology of actors that are coming forward to, to be supportive and try to advance the options technologically? but also the political and advocacy role. So Welcome is a philanthropic organization, but we're not huge. We have to work with others in partnership with others, the Gates Foundation, uh, national governments, because again, actually nobody's big enough to do this on their own. Our role, I think, is to be a, a catalytic funder. We can put money available to uh, fund science, to fund innovation, and indeed fund the social sciences that are critical as well, and we fund all three of those. And we can produce catalytic funding very quickly and we can perhaps move quicker than national governments can sometimes. We can work in partnership with industry. We can work in partnership with NGOs, MSFs mm -hmm. of this world. We can work in partnerships with government. We, we don't sort of care who we partner with as long as we get the job done. And we have, along with governments of Germany and Norway and Japan and the Gates Foundation, established CEPI, which is there, to invest in vaccines for epidemic diseases. We know we won't have a vaccine, I believe, in 2020 as a public health measure for this coronavirus. But we also know at some point we need one. And therefore, I think it's critical that we invest in those technologies now, even though we know it might not be available in the first waves of this epidemic, because I believe we'll face further epidemics. And what I think is crucial for us, putting together these three things, science, innovation, and making sure society is part of that, is that we do, number one, the public health measures that are important, the hand washing, critical, the social distancing, and the avoidance of mass gathering, so that we limit and mitigate the public health, number one. Number two is that we make sure we've got diagnostics available. Right. Absolutely critical that people can diagnose somebody with this infection, diagnose somebody without this infection, and then do the right things and for that person. And that's been one of the most difficult obstacles, that absence right now. Uh, the absence of diagnostics has been critical. I think we've moved that pro forward. So social, uh, public health, diagnostics, we must push on development of drugs mm -hmm. because we have no specific therapies at the moment and we need those quickly. We can repurpose drugs from other infections, we can develop new ones. And fourthly, we need the vaccines. Now, all of those four will have impact today, public health, Vaccines may be a year or two, maybe mm -hmm. five years away, mm -hmm. in truth. Uh, mm -hmm. We don't have a vaccine today for the common cold. We don't have a vaccine today for MERS or SARS. So, you know, a coronavirus vaccine is not easy. But those four things, public health, diagnostics, treatment and vaccines, we must do those in parallel, not in sequence. We must invest at risk, even if the vaccine is going to take us a year or two years or three years. It'll take you two or three years from whenever you start. So you better start today. But we cannot just do that alone. We have to do it aligned with the public health, the diagnostics, the, the drugs and the vaccines altogether. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. Great pleasure. Thanks for all you've done. Thank you.